Dotnet Rocks episode 681 with guest Ray Bango. Recorded live Monday, June 27th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Hey, thank you very much. It's Carl. It's Richard. It's .net. We are here to serve. Hey, man, what's up? I'm, yeah, having a gas. Crazy season as usual. Finally, the conferences are almost all over. Yep. We're back from Norway. It's the 27th of June today. And we got a ton of great shows from the Norwegian Developers Conference. Some really good stuff. Yeah, a lot of fun. Lots of interesting things coming up on the horizon for .NET developers, we think. Absolutely. And uh, working hard to try and get a good picture and paint it on the show. We're trying. We're trying. trying our best. It's a lot of fun. Hey, uh, let's start off this show right with Better Know Framework. You know, occasionally on Better Know Framework, it's all about sharing resources, you know? A little education. That's what yep, it's all about. For sure. So I like to find out what people are downloading on CodePlex, you know, what's popular. And what's really popular now, besides some crazy World of Warcraft stuff that <laughs> I don't even understand, um, Image Resizer for Windows. It's oh. a little utility that lets you resize one or more selected image files directly from Windows Explorer by right-clicking. Okay. He says, I created it so that modern Windows users could regain the joy they left behind with Microsoft's Image Resizer Power Toy for Windows XP. I remember that toy. I love that toy. Yeah, right-click, resize pictures. You can, you know, and then you basically pick a size and or a custom size and you let it go and it goes... You know, select all your files and do it in one shot. And that's at imageresizer.codeplex.com. You know, Richard, before you share what people are saying about us, I want to just mention that Pwop Studios has officially released its first real major album. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we have released an EP before and we did a song here and a song there, but we, you know, we haven't really released anything. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I produced, along with Chris Castle, his masterpiece album of God and Man Beneath the Sun. It's a short album, and it's really interesting. If you like the Beatles, Americana, you know, really good vocals and positive message and, you know, safe for kids, just really good music that makes you think a little bit and gives you something to tap your toe to, uh, it's really, really nice. Now, what's interesting is that there's several, 13 or so cuts on the album or 11 wow. cuts, but they all run into each other. Like there's no gaps between the, between the songs. It's like one big song and there's little vocal acapella interludes and really interesting things to listen to. A lot of ear candy. So you can check that out at tinyurl.com slash of God and man of God and man. And I'll play just a little bit of it for you right now. Check this out. So a single drop of water fell upon a yellow ball and it rolled around just long enough to spawn us all. There's a single drop of water falling on and on and on. Single drop of water. Thank you. 
And that's how the album ends, actually. Mm. Nice. And those vocals uh, in the band that he's playing with is the Womack family band. They played at Code Mash. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember. Yes. It was great. It was great. Everybody loved him. So there you go. And I'm really, really, really proud of the work that I've done with, with Chris Castle and on this album. So do, do me a favor. Just go listen to it. And if you like it, buy it. Hey, Thanks. congratulations, my friend. And put together an album is nothing, not a trivial effort. No, but it was a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. All right. Who's talking to us? Hey, you'll love this comment. This is from, uh, this is from the .NET Rocks website from the Aspect Oriented Programming at NDC show, show 672. Per Ackerberg said, Hey guys, this show was great in two ways. First of all, I got to see it live at NDC. And yes, there were 40,000 of us there throwing yep. chairs. <laughs> Second, that's, you've got to explain that reference. I yeah, think. I will. I will. <laughs> you know, basically, anytime we do a live show, uh, I prep the audience before, you know, the standard producer talk, you know, when, when we hold up the applause sign, you go crazy. But it's, you know, in the beginning when we say, welcome to Dot and Rocks, I basically ask them to make as much noise as they possibly can. And part of that is picking up the chair next to you and beating the person with it. Yeah. Right. Take off your clothes, run up and down. Yeah. Well, and obviously he responded to that. Yeah. And he, co- he continues. Second, it got me shifting my perspective on aspect-oriented programming. Cool. One thing that really struck a note with me was what Donald mentioned of a guy not knowing that a unit of work handling uh, AOP was in place. Mm. It seems like AOP lets us focus on the real stuff, making it easier for new team members to get up and running. There is only a handful of senior devs that know about the AOP stuff at all. Seeing AOP as a facilitator of easier adoption of new staff is something new to me. So thanks for this and all the great shows. Awesome. And Per, thanks very much. We really got excited about AOP as well. I thought that panel worked extremely well. That balance of you've got a guy like Gail Frateur who, you know, wrote that library. And then you got on the other side, Don Belcom, who is implementing it in a real world application and showing the advantages. So it, it really opened my eyes to the way AOP, AOP was working. And the Don he's talking about is Don Belcham, who is yeah. a AOP user. He is a, a guy who says he doesn't write any projects without AOP now. Yeah, it's something. So uh, if you haven't already listened to the show, go listen to that show because it's a good one. And uh, one of many that we recorded in NDC. And if you've got questions, comments, concerns about our shows, want to see a particular topic, you can leave us a comment on any show at .netrocks.com. Well, I'm very excited because our guest today is Ray Bango. As the client web community program manager for Microsoft, Ray focuses on promoting best practices for client-side web development and helping Microsoft meet the needs of this community. Man, that's a, that, didn't, didn't I write that out really well? Very well. <laughs> He's a really good bio writer. <laughs> He's passionate about HTML5 and the possibilities that it brings for building rich, interactive web applications. In addition, Ray is a member of the jQuery JavaScript project team and editor of scriptjunkie.com the best place for cross-browser solutions-based web development articles. Welcome, Ray. Hey, how are you? I've never seen anybody with the name Ray spelled R-E-Y. That's an interesting spelling. Do you, were your parents hippies? <laughs> no, no. It's actually short for Reynaldo, oh, cool. uh, which is spelled R-E-I-N-A-L-D-O. But the one thing I found is that over the years, it's real, it, people have, have a hard time pronouncing my first name, so I've I've always cut it down to just Ray, and okay. it seems to have worked out really well. Okay, that's cool. Very cool. So um, you have spent your life pretty much in the in the in the, you know your career, a good part of your career, doing browser web kind of stuff, not just for Microsoft, but in different companies. I sure have. I've been doing web development now. I think uh, eleven or twelve years, something like that. Yeah, so it's been interesting. I'm focusing heavily on the server side for the beginning of my web career. And then shifting to the client side, I'm going to say about four years ago or so, and uh, really, really he- focusing heavily on that. And were you doing JavaScript the whole time? Uh, when I started off in web development, I was doing server-side development using Cold Fusion, and uh, I, I, I'm sure that a lot of people know about Cold Fusion. <laughs> That's and, a blast know, from the past. Yeah, right it is. Yeah, it, it was great. And so uh, what ended up happening was that I started hearing everybody talking about this Ajax stuff and Ajax stuff and Ajax stuff and I was like, and, and, and I had done some JavaScript. I wasn't an expert by any means, but, you know, I said, all right, let me, let me jump into this Ajax thing. And I figured it was a new, impressive technology. 
So I went out and bought a book on Ajax, and when I started reading on it, I realized, oh, this is just JavaScript. Yeah. But it was neat. It was actually really cool, and so I just got kind of hooked on it, and it felt really cool to, to work on that, and I started looking for a nice JavaScript library that would help me bridge the gap uh, in terms of understanding JavaScript and, do, and managing a lot of these cross-browser nuances that were going on, and I searched through all of them. Back then, it was Moki Kit and Open Rico, and, and of course, Dojo was a big one. But I kept reading about jQuery and jQuery and jQuery, and so I looked at jQuery, and it was just a natural fit. It just yeah. made total sense to me. Yeah, and and of course, take taken off like crazy. jQuery has just because oh, you don't need to be has, yeah. you don't need to be such a badass JavaScript developer anymore. Well, the the here's the interesting part, and I think um, that's one of the things that we try to stress in the jQuery project that jQuery will definitely help you do a lot of great things, and it'll definitely. Uh, abstract a lot of the complexities, but being a good JavaScript developer will help you take it much farther. So uh, what I'm really happy to see is that developers start off with jQuery, they get really, really immersed into it, they become very proficient in it, and then they start saying, you know what, I'm going to take it to the next level, and they start learning JavaScript, and that's when they become ninjas, and that makes me really happy. It's sort, of like, the, it. sort of like the cold fusion developer who, who discovers ASP.NET. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I remember you said Cold Fusion. I had a, a couple of people in, you know, I used to teach .NET classes, hands-on classes. And I remember having some some people who were very good at Cold Fusion in my classes just scratching their heads saying, we spent a whole day trying to do this, you know, three-tiered client-server architecture to display some customer data and edit and do CRUD apps, and I could do this in five seconds in Cold Fusion, you know. Yep. And it's hard to argue with that, but at the same time, they never really had to learn the 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 ins and outs of doing that kind of stuff. Well, I think what what ended up happening with Cold Fusion is that when it first started, it was very simple to to create a dynamic application that just built that was just built using plain Jane HTML. It would render yeah. out HTML, and that was it. But you had no real separation of concerns. So things like right. concepts that, like MVC weren't even thought about. And and the folks at Alayer really started doing some good work. And then when they were acquired by Macromedia, they started doing even more work. And they started mm-hmm. thinking about how to create components that you can actually compartmentalize your business logic. Yeah. And and, and obviously now, you know, with Adobe, they've, they've really pushed that. And there's frameworks that, that help you uh, compartmentalize your code. Fusebox has been around for many, many years, but there's, I'm sure there's a lot more. I'm not as involved in the, in the community as, as I used to be, obviously. And uh, but I still have plenty of friends that are, they love Cold Fusion to this day, and they're very successful, and the product has evolved tremendously. So what is it that makes a good JavaScript developer? This is probably something we haven't really talked about too much on .NET Rocks directly asking that question. I know what it means to be a good C-sharp developer, a good VBNet developer, and a good, you know, object-oriented programmer, mm-hmm. but what what sort of skills do you need or, or architectures do you need to learn to be a good JavaScript developer. So let's let's try to figure out what it means to be a JavaScript developer. So you're going to have different types of people. You're going to have people, for example, who just want to sprinkle some some niceties on their application. They just want a couple of fancy effects and stuff. And yeah, view source, and, cut and paste. Yeah, and those people, <laughs> you know, they may ne- they they may never want to be a true JavaScript developer. They may just need to enhance their site. And to be honest, most any JavaScript library out there can definitely help them out. I, I always lean on jQuery because I think, you know, I'm part of the project team, but I also am a firm believer that jQuery helps these developers build up their sites much quicker. Yeah. And so those guys will leverage jQuery's, you know, the effects that are built into jQuery and some nice, I don't know, uh, blurring effects or, you know, um, toggling of animation, and that's cool. So that's one set of developers. Then you have the next level, which they want to they get a little bit more advanced. They want to bundle together a bunch of plugins that'll do things like light boxes and things like that, and that's mm-hmm. great. And those developers are a little bit more savvy, and they might learn a little more about JavaScript only to get them to the point where they can actually build out their application to the way they want it and incorporate these plugins. Yeah. And that's the second level. And then you've got the guys that are really hardcore, and these are the guys that are not only leveraging plugins, but they're writing plugins. Yeah. And they're building good stuff. And, the, and, and so... A lot of these developers, from what I've seen, will start off with just learning jQuery, get really, really immersed into it, 
become very proficient in it, and then they'll start reading up on JavaScript. They'll understand what closures mean. They'll understand the scoping. They'll understand object-oriented programming, um, all the concepts that go around functional programming. And obviously, if you have a background in application development, it does help you out tremendously. Yeah. So it's not to say you have to have a college degree, but when, you've, when you do have some level of formal education in computer programming, it mm-hmm. certainly helps you understand the concepts and how they can be applied to this programming language because ultimately JavaScript is a very, very robust programming language. Yeah. It, do you, are you still, I mean, you obviously don't have types. You don't have things like that. It's, it's more of a dynamic language. But um, are yeah, there... I would challenge that thought of, is this a very robust language? What does that mean? Well, it, it, it means that a lot of the stuff that developers have come to, to depend on in other programming languages are there. For example, uh, JavaScript is an object-oriented language. It's prototypal inherit. It uses prototypal inheritance. Um, you can encapsulate code using patterns. So a lot of uh, th- there are different ways of formatting your code that is very comparable to other languages. I'm going to assume like C Sharp, uh, Pascal, uh, you know, C. So a lot of developers that have become, that are C Sharp developers or C, when they come into JavaScript, it's in many cases the very natural progression for them because they understand the concepts. Yep, yeah. it, and it's fascinating to compare the idea of a, a C-style programmer, which is kind of hardcore, I think, mm-hmm. is the way most people would look at it, to right. a JavaScript programmer, which tends to be black turtleneck fluffy. Uh, I don't know about that one. I, I know that I have no black turtlenecks. <laughs> <laughs> but I, and I think one of the problems is that there's, and you've already alluded to this, that there's the different sort of tiers of JavaScript developers that a lot of folks that... Th- Consider yourself JavaScript developers be happier to just be in CSS anyway. If you, all you want is a good hover effect, there's a style for you. Right. And I think, I think there are those developers that just would prefer to be in CSS. And uh, it, it's interesting because we, we go back to the, doc, the original dot-com uh, heyday where you had, I, I'm going to say, real estate, real estate agents and uh, attorneys and, I'm gonna, dare I say, even doctors who said, you know, I'm going to cash in on this dot-com stuff. Right. Mm. And they came in there and they did their best to become uh, application developers. And it wasn't always successful for them. Some of them actually migrated really well because they they picked up the concepts. Uh, I I think now what you're seeing is a very big difference between the level of training that developers have now versus back then. Because when you look at the dot-coms that are building these really awesome sites, the engineering staff is top-notch. They Mm -hmm. get what it takes to build an application. So whether it's the front-end JavaScript code or the back-end, maybe it's ASP.NET or maybe it's Python with the Django or PHP, you're looking at them and you're seeing them evolve. And that's why, um, I don't know, things like different frameworks that are they're coming out are helping them do better code organization. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, code organization seems to be a big one. Absolutely. You know, we have, we have these issues in, you know, when we're doing you know, our, our big applications in .NET, the, you know, what, how you break down the files so that they all are easily, you know, so that you can work with them easier and reuse them and all that kind of stuff. Do you have these same kinds of issues in the JavaScript world? Oh, of course, absolutely. And if, if you look at, uh, if you look at right now what some of the, the these, I call them code organization projects are doing, You'll, you can kind of see where people are thinking differently. So you look at something like, let's say, Appentu. Uh, Appentu has a, uh, their project called Amplify, which is a set of components which helps you be- better organize your code in a, in a way. And then you have, of course, uh, what is it, Knockout.js mm. and JavaScript MVC. And, of course, Backbone, which gives you an MVC-style framework. It, it shows that developers are really thinking about how to properly isolate their code so they have better maintenance across the board. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, who bring you the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC. The extensions bring rich UIs to your MVC application. These are just announced, and this time they're not standard web forms controls tailored for MVC, but native, built-from-the-ground-up MVC components. There's three important things to remember. One, they're pure ASP.NET MVC components. Two, they're based on jQuery. And third, and this is the best part, they're completely open source. Just go to www.telerik.com slash MVC 
for more information and online demos. Make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I'm also looking at Node.js, which is uh, totally JavaScript-eccentric right now, although there's rumor that there's going to be something that runs more on the Windows side. They're actually going to port it. But it's just an interesting way to think about JavaScript outside of the browser. It is, and I haven't ha- I haven't gotten a chance to to actually code for Node.js. It's actually a really cool project, and it's get, gaining a lot of steam. And and yeah, Microsoft just announced uh, they they did a co announcement with Joyent about porting uh, Node for onto Windows as a native binary. So right now you can use Node on Windows, but you have to use SigWin to kind of simulate. Um, I, I guess a Unix like environment. I've never right. used SigWin, but that's that's my understanding. But you know, and I think there's there's the axiomatic point. It's a real language if you're going to start using it outside of the the browser. That that's really a transformational thought. I will pick this language not just because it's convenient, but it's the way I want to write code. Exactly, and I think when you when you do this, and you know, I've 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 looked at some estimates, and you know, like in the in in this community, you probably have easily anywhere from eight to twelve million developers easily. Mm-hmm. And so you start thinking, God, if these developers could leverage their skill set right now to start working server side as well, that'd be fantastic. And that's what's that's what's basically happening. Yeah. So if you look at these developers, you you know you're you're seeing that they have an opportunity now to code end to end applications using the technologies they love mm. and they're really comfortable with. So you're taking a client side developer and saying, Hey, you can now build a complete solution. That's that's pretty hot. But I, I think I'm still, I'm going to challenge the 8 to 12 million number now, too, because I think that's when you bunch in all of the lightweight JavaScript developers, Or the too. people that are using tools that generate JavaScript. Yeah. I hope a lot of people aren't using uh, JavaScript generators. I mean, it's, it's I know JavaScript, uh, any, any programming language can be daunting. Um, well, what about but, something like Prototype? Well, Prototype is, is, a, is a library similar to jQuery. So prototype is not generating code for you. It's basically the equivalent of using any type of framework that you would use in any other programming language. Mm. So you you know you you it's giving you objects and it's giving you methods and and things that make your life easier. It's giving you that level of abstraction to so that you don't have to worry as much about cross-browser issues. Yeah. So that's that's and that's that's the thing that these libraries do. The great thing about JavaScript libraries is they do abstract those complexities, and, and browser differences are can be very complex. So, you know, now when the modern browsers, you're looking at IE9 and Firefox, you know, 4 and 5, and of course Chrome and Opera, the cool thing is that now they're, they're, they're really focused on standards, and so hopefully a lot of these nuances will, will start shrinking up as, as people, as consumers start upgrading their browsers. But this still gets back to the question of, you know, starting to actually have a group of developers that build code outside of the browser in JavaScript because it's a preferred language for that. And, I'm, and I still wrestle with what JavaScript brings to the table that makes that valuable. That it's supported by all the browsers. I think it's probably... I want to be out of the browser. Oh, right out now. of the browser. Oh. No browser. Why am I writing this language? That's a good well, question. Yeah, that's a very good question. And I, and I think, again, that... You're, you have a lot of developers who are very comfortable with the language. It provides the functionality they expect. And now what needs to be exposed are, are APIs that give file system access. And that's where Node really shines. Sh- Node will give you those APIs that allow JavaScript developers to leverage their existing skills and build the server-side applications. So if I go to a JavaScript developer right now and say, hey, guess what? You know, In order to build a, uh, an application, you're going to have to relearn a whole entire language. You're going to have to learn... Um, C Sharp, or you're going to have to learn uh, PHP, or you're going to have to learn uh, Python. A lot of those developers are going to kind of balk at me, or they might they might grudgingly do that. But I think a lot of developers might be really interested in a lot of JavaScript developers might be really interested in saying, "Hey, you know what? I have a server side solution where I don't have to relearn something, and I don't have to. Um, I'm going to say waste three to six months of a learning curve to get to become productive." Well, and, and also write a couple of ugly apps along the way. Mm. Sure. Mm. How much do you think, you know, tooling has made JavaScript more palatable? You know what? I, that's, that's still something that I think is lacking tremendously. And, and I, I know a lot of developers will, 
might might actually have a counter argument with me, but I look at the tooling out there, and I can't I can't find one IDE that compares to how easy it is to build .NET applications. And and note, I'm not an, a .NET developer. I that's not my background. It's just that I see what my my peers how productive they are. Visual Studio is awesome. I haven't found anything for the JavaScript world that is as awesome as Visual Studio. Now, I'm glad that Visual Studio is being enhanced, for example, like a lot of the, uh, there's extensions that have been put out that make JavaScript development easier. Yeah. But for the most part, the the same level of tooling that you have for C Sharp developers is not there. Right. It's just not. And so there, it's evolving, and I hope in the future there'll be you know, more, just more features, but it's just not there right now. Well, there's uh, a, I, I know a lot of Mac developers love TextMate, for example, and TextMate has have bundles, and that's great. But it's, to me, it's not a full-blown IDE. It doesn't have a lot of the – there's like pieces that aren't integrated, and to me it's just an external, it's just an external extension. I don't know. Is it even possible to do that kind of level of tooling that C Sharp has without a without a compiler, so to speak? You know, without I, types and all of that. I, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. It's, I I don't know what it would take um, to to make, for example, Visual Studio yeah be as effective with JavaScript as it is with C Sharp. But I'm hoping that the uh, the Visual Studio team is tackling that. And I, you know, I hope they come out with something awesome that would make JavaScript developers say, "Holy cow!" You know, that's all, that's great. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that one. Yep. So, what's your relationship to Script Junkie? So, Script Junkie is my baby. Uh-huh. Oh, that's my baby. Let's um, check it out. Yeah. So, uh, when I was when I was brought onto Microsoft, they wanted to launch an initiative on MSDN that would that would allow developers to get really, really great content, content that was solutions-based and it was browser-agnostic and cross-platform and the whole, whole entire kit and caboodle, and educate developers on uh, really uh, on building client-side applications. Hey, and so, you got Lenny Kravitz to pose for you. That's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the guy has a lot of... He, he has a really, really long hair. Yeah, so. and he's thinking so hard that his hair is just electrified. There you okay. go. So... Uh, when we when we when I joined Microsoft, that that was one of the reasons they they brought me in because I have very strong ties with the community, and they wanted somebody who could uh, reach out to the community and say, "Hey, listen, you know, this is going to be a really good site. Uh, we're not going to focus on just on Microsoft content. We want to make it browser agnostic, and we want to make sure that there there are actually solutions to common problems." And so that's what I yeah. focused on. I reached out to a bunch of developers, and uh, a lot of developers are luminaries in the JavaScript world. The people like Yuri Zaitsev and Christian Howman, um, Elijah Manor, who is uh, an MVP, but has gotten a great name in the JavaScript community, uh, and Emily Lewis, who is like the leading micro, to me, the leading microformats expert. And they wrote, they wrote some great articles for us, and they continue to write some great articles. And so far, the site has been growing at a steady clip. I'm really happy about it. It looks like good stuff, and you have code samples and line numbers and all sorts of good things. Yeah, and the cool thing is that we focus on um, JavaScript, HTML, and CSS, and so now we're we're obviously shifting our content to focus heavily on HTML5 and CSS3. Yeah, uh, because that just makes a lot of sense. That's where everybody's mind is at, and we want to make sure that we have uh, the stuff to support them. I'm concerned that as we start to really ship these new browsers, that the HTML5 implementations are going to diverge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to become quite challenging for developers. I've, I've just got this, I've got this chill that it's, it's 1996 again and HTML4 is all over the map and trying to make, you know, you end up with a lot of if this browser, then this, if this browser, then this kind of code. Right. I, the, the thing is that I've, what I've been seeing is that all the major browser ma- uh, makers are sticking to the HTML5 specification. That's great. The, the tough part is this, the actual deployment schedules and when certain features are, are being pushed out. Right. And that's where the challenges come in. And so uh, obviously you have some browsers who are on an increased cadence, and that, that makes sense for them. And then you have other browsers that take a, a much more methodical approach because they have to support their, their customers. And obviously I'm talking about Microsoft Internet Explorer there. Mm. So there's a balancing act. And so one of the things that I've been been talking about a lot lately is the use of polyfills and shims to bridge those gaps. And it's not saying, and 
I don't know, do you guys know what polyphills and shims are? Tell us. Okay, so polyphills and shims, a lot, they, they try to mimic the functionality in a, in a specification so that you can future-proof your application. So let's say right now that, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll give you an example. When, before, before, uh, when IE9, let's see, what's a good example of a polyfill? Semantic tags, I guess. Well, IE6, 7, and 8 don't currently support semantic tags well. What if you had a polyfill, a piece of JavaScript code, that could help you mimic those semantic tags so that you can build your application now using these non-modern browsers, and then still, when the, once you deploy on a non-modern browser, your application code doesn't have to change and your applications work correctly. So hmm. that's one of the things that I'm trying to promote right now, using and conservatively using polyfills and shims to future-proof your application so that you can migrate to these modern browsers at a nice methodical and planned clip without affecting your, your, your company or your application. Okay. Does that make sense, or do I? Uh, it, I'm sure it makes sense to the JavaScript developers. <laughs> okay. That's the most important thing. Well, I'll give you an example. Let's say you, uh, your, your browser doesn't support geolocation. Yeah. If there was a way to have um, code that would mimic geolocation, right. then you could use geolocation right now in a non-modern browser, and then when, you're, when you've upgraded your browser to mm. a modern level, you don't have to change your code at all. Just it's so it doesn't fail when the feature is not available. Exactly. Yeah. So then you, you're really trying to create a shim that uh, that puts in some kind of data for trying to fetch the geolocation results. Exactly. And and you know the other thing that I promote is that just you don't have to offer the the same experience across all browsers. Right. You know users can have a degraded experience. That's perfectly fine. And when they use a modern browser, then you can offer them the enhanced experience. And most of the time, when they have an older browser, they won't know the difference. They're going to be like, oh, okay, this is my experience, no problem. And then when they, they ship to a modern browser, they're going to be totally surprised and say, wow, this is great. Look at all these new features I have. That's perfectly fine. I just think it's, you know, users do have a degraded experience. It's when it comes up with an object not found error. You know, it's it's very challenging to write code that works in all those browsers. Right, and, and I, I think developers really bust our head trying to give the same experience across the board. Sometimes you have no choice. Sometimes you have customers who just demand it, regardless of what browser they're on. And and to some customers, it's really important. Uh, IE6, it's still very pervasive, unfortunately, and, and I really wish IE6 would die. But to mm. some companies, IE6 is incredibly important. I was talking to a friend of mine um, at Facebook one time, and he was telling me, uh, I asked him point blank, I said, guys, why don't you just dump IE6 support? And um, he told me that dumping IE6 support would cost them something like 5 million users. Wow. So I, can, I get why they support it. But here's the interesting part. If you go in uh, to Facebook with IE6, you get a degraded experience. They tell you flat out, look, you're going to have a degraded experience. We're not going to give you all the, all the bells and whistles. And that's perfectly fine. Yeah, I guess there's a sort of stripped-down threshold you want to get to that it works. It's just missing things. Exactly. Uh, well, there was that whole movement. I think it started out in Norway where literally when you went to the website, it popped up a box that says, hey, you're running IE6. You need a real browser. Here's a link. <laughs> friends don't let and friends it, run IE6. Yeah. I really wish more more developers could do that. And I understand that some developers are they're kind of handcuffed, and it's tough because then you have everybody else you know, pressuring them to – uh, to, to, to just drop support. And you can't always do that. Yeah. You have, there are business needs sometimes that have to be considered. So I, I, I sympathize with those developers, and I, I feel bad for them. Well, it works and, the other uh, way, too. There's, there's apps that have been built that are now old that only work correctly in IE6. Sure. And we're, we're building VM instances of XP to run IE6 on a Win7 machine just to keep that app functional. Exactly. It's horrifying, but true. Well, I think a lot of developers forget that web apps are, they're not solely on the internet. And that's a very important piece of, uh, piece of information that developers just, sometimes they tend to forget that there are companies out there that have built web apps that are on, on intranets and they need to continue to be supported and they're vital to the company. And you just can't dump them. Yeah. Not everything's on the web. Not everything's out there, uh, you know, dub, dub, dub. So... 
At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Well, and if you built an IE6-specific website, you probably built it the better part of 10 years ago, and whoever built it is gone. Yep. That's, uh, that's, that's probably true. It's, it's a trapped uh, environment. So that brings us to um, HTML5 on mobile devices, you know, sort of uh, the the holy grail of of the development world now because we we think we can write this one type of application and it'll run on every kind of iPad and this pad and that tablet and this phone and that phone. Oh no, we've <laughs> we've had these discussions over and over again. The uh-huh. consensus seems to be that that would be wonderful. If that were the case, but you know, the question still remains, how close can we get? How close can we expect to get? I think, uh, frameworks such as PhoneGap and Accelerator, uh, I think it's called Titanium by Accelerator. Yeah. And, uh, Sencha Touch really get you far along and they're great. PhoneGap, especially PhoneGap's fantastic. Mm. Uh, and of course, jQuery Mobile is out there. And jQuery Mobile, the cool thing about it is that it try, it really aims to cover a nice breadth of mobile devices. Mm. But the the hard part is that when you're targeting mobile devices, you you have so many different screen resolutions and some, and the hardware configurations matter a lot. And uh, that's why so many developers focus specifically on uh, a set number of devices. So they may focus on uh, Android and iPhone because those are pretty standard in terms of what the capabilities are in many cases. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to HTML5 support, the hard part is uh, understanding which browser supports which features. So with iOS, you, 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 I think you, you probably have a pretty clear understanding of what features are supported. But when it comes to different versions of Android, uh, then it becomes a little bit more challenging. And then you look at like Windows Phone 7, uh, and Windows Phone 7 has a it, – it's it's – a very Windows mobile specific version of, of IE. And so there's some features in there that might be great, but for the most part, you're not getting a lot of HTML5 support. So that's why hopefully with the Mango release, you're going to have a much more, uh, much more feature rich API to, to kind of go against. Mm. So are we there yet? Um, I, I think on some devices, you're very close, but you're still going to have to do some work. Mobile's a whole different monster. And I, and I, I always, if I had to do, build a mobile app right now, it certainly wouldn't be from scratch. I would be leveraging something like PhoneGap or um, tit- Accelerator, mm-hmm. tit- Titanium from Accelerator, um, or Sencha Touch or jQuery Mobile. But there's still different. There's still different applications. There's still different platforms. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, and these aren't native apps. These are you're you're assuming that you're building uh, to hit against the mobile browser. Mm. So if you want that native application feel then that's a whole different game. You know, for, uh, for example, recently there was news about how Apple didn't optimize their mobile browser mm. for, I think they call it like desktop pinned browser apps or something. Mm-hmm. So the native apps would, would outperform the apps that you would pin from the browser. And it's because mobile Safari really wasn't optimized for that. It's not, it's not I don't think Apple did anything, you know, on purpose. It's just that's the way they, they I, don't, I don't know if they were actually even expecting this. So now I think they released an update which greatly optimizes the performance of these uh, mobile browser applications. So we should, we should be seeing some really good performance coming soon. I saw the Mango demo that was public release. The performance is fantastic. So having hardware-accelerated Canvas on a mobile browser should be really awesome. Yeah, the, the question is, how do you stop the native app builders from eating your lunch? That they, they're going to write for the specific platform as soon as you try and do that in HTML5 and really take advantage of your platform, now you're building multiple apps anyway just in HTML5. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I think uh, as much as I think some people would like to say that the HTML5 mobile web applications will supplant native applications, 
I don't know. That's hard to say. I haven't seen it. Uh, I, even I even on, on iOS, which is still a very strong platform, Sure. most of the apps that are being built are native. Yeah. And, and I, I think, think that comes down to yeah. uh, monetary reasons. That's, I, think I was a, just going to say that. Yeah, I think there's a, just a better system for monetizing your work than assuming that somebody's going to go, hit a browser, bring up an application, and, and you try to monetize it that way. At the end right. of the day, that's what it's all about is how, you know, it isn't about the greatest reach. It's about the most money. Right. So I'm, I, I think people need to define how somebody who's building an HTML5 mobile-enabled application will monetize their work. I see it as something that would be a complement to an existing site that mm. is really useful to somebody. Right. So, for example, something, let's say, like a 37Signals site, like Basecamp or something like that, where they're charging for their service, I could totally see a mobile version of that that's HTML5 enabled being fantastic. You're on yeah. your phone, you need to look up a project, boom, I'm going to look it up. That's, that's the perfect compliment right there. Sure. So uh, until somebody comes up with a mobile infrastructure that will allow easy monetization of these HTML5 enabled applications, I'm not sure where they're going to fit in that scheme, except as complementary apps. I think the other side of this where HTML5 would actually shine is the enterprise-style development. I'm building apps for my organization that have to go on to mobile devices. That is a great – yep, that's a, definitely a great scenario right there. And it, and it actually bypasses all the problems where I don't want to deploy through these app stores. I want them internal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I yeah, actually care about the revenue stream. Control. Yep, absolutely. So, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to me that that might be the dividing line that the sort of consumer world will stick with native apps because the payment system works and it takes advantage of the platform, da 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 and the guys who are 9-to-5 programmers who need to build apps to work on all these mobile platforms uh, for their business will build it HTML5 because it works across all the platforms, and uh, I don't have to worry about all of the stuff around the app store. That's, that's a good scenario. I, I could definitely see something like that. Well, in an odd schism in the marketplace, you know, we, we always, what, what is it about development that we want the one right way? Yeah. Well, I, th- I, I think, I think developers don't want to have to worry about multiple ways of doing things. Uh, yeah. I, I know that I, that's, that's always on my mind. How, what's, how can I come up with a way of building something so that I don't have to build it three times over? Right. You know, I remember being in, in the component, uh, business at Crescent Software when the OCXs, Hit. You know, we went from oh, VBXs from, to OCXs. Oh, yeah. Suddenly, our market went from just Visual Basic developers to Visual Basic developers and C++ developers, and they were crying, you know, now we're going to have to support the, our stuff, at, you know, in C++. You know, what's the answer to that? And, you know, my answer was, so you support it in C++. You know, this is the, not a bad problem to have. You know, my market is expanding. What do I do? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, and I remember using OCXs even in Power Builder, and, um, and, and they were a godsend. I mean, to me, it was, all right, here's a, a pre-built set of code that works really well, and I'm just going to plop it in, and it's going to work. You know, oh, great. Yeah. You know? And so the, I, I think developers will always look to, to find ways that will minimize their work in something that is maintainable, that's that it it itself is supported, right? And that has a good community around it. And those are the key things. I I don't think developers will just embrace something for the sake of embracing it. They're going to look for other attributes. Uh, that one of the reasons jQuery, for example, is so successful is because the it, it's well supported. The development team is top notch. But then on top of that, you have a massive community, and that's critical. Sure is. Yep. So that's I think I think that's why developers look towards these types of projects that are. That will get them, uh, even if it's fifty percent of the way. Well, that's a, that fifty percent is huge. What about jQuery and HTML5 together? Um, well, jQuery is complementary to HTML5. So, but I'm thinking, you know, the strength of jQuery was hiding all these vagaries of JavaScript on different browsers for me. Right. Has it has has it kept up to date? Is the latest implementations for HTML5 all there as well? Well, I, I, you got to remember that jQuery is is there to manipulate the DOM. It's uh, HTML5 is a totally different monster, and so uh, jQuery's role is not to try to mimic, for example, functionality that's in HTML5 in any way. Right. It's it's meant to allow you to uh, manipulate the DOM and interface with HTML5 whenever it's appropriate. For example, like the the new enhanced data attributes. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. there's there's support for that. But when you're talking about let's say something like geolocation, 
you're not going to find something in jQuery that's going to let you leverage geolocation. You're going to have to know JavaScript in that. Right. You could, if there's an object that gets rendered in some fashion on a, you know, an HTML, let's say an HTML5 semantic tag, mm. then sure, you can still use um, jQuery's factory method to go ahead and grab that semantic tag and, and do something on it. Right. But in terms of the, the more advanced APIs, whether it's geolocation or maybe this, you know, I don't know, web workers down the road or uh, web sockets or the file API, those are things that I, I don't. I think they're outside of the scope of jQuery's uh, jQuery's mission. So you're not going to see a lot of things that are going to be added to that. Now, what you may see is, believe it or not, are third-party plugins where developers have abstracted some of the complexities of working with these APIs. Right. And you can leverage those plugins to actually you know, plug into the APIs. Yeah, I could see that. And this gets back to your whole point around shims, is that here's somebody else who's gone through the work, so you can just call to the geolocation uh, class, and it works. Whether it has geolocation or not, it's not your problem. It'll just work. Yeah, in, in one of my presentations, I actually show Border Radius, and uh, Border Radius is a CSS3 um, uh, directive that will let you do rounded corners. Right. And it's great. I mean, it's wonderful if your browser supports it because you don't have to you don't have to cut up images anymore with rounded corners or do some really advanced stuff to get it working or advanced JavaScript. Well, one of the things that I show is that if you're in a modern browser, here's border radius and it works great. But if you're in a non-modern browser, what happens is I default to using the jQuery Corners plugin written by Mike Alsup. He's one of my teammates on the jQuery project. And it works beautifully. It's the, kind of like that fallback effect so that if you're, you're using a browser that really just doesn't support the feature, let's fall back into something that will give them a similar appearance. And for that, I actually use Modernizer. And Modernizer is just really such a great library. It does feature detection on HTML5 and CSS3 features. Yeah. So you can go in there and you can say, I think, it, I think the code is something like if modernizer.border-radius or border radius or something like that. And um, it, that will tell you whether it supports it or not. And then based on whether it does or not, you can actually have different code. You can have conditional logic that says, if it doesn't support it, then let's dynamically load this jQuery plugin that will give me rounded corners. Right. That That is very, very cool. You know, Modernizer is another one of those great set of tools. Uh, are there other tools we need? We've talked about jQuery. We've talked about Modernizer. What do you, what do you go to to make all this work? Oh, um, God. Well, I think for, you know, there, there's a couple different things. Obviously, getting, getting up to speed in JavaScript is, is I, I've been promoting that lately because I think it's really important. I think we're at, we're at a level where we have to um, use jQuery as a great complement and start really understanding JavaScript to take it, the applications to the next level. And you go so, to Script Junkie to read all about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And there's some great books out there as well if you want to get up to speed. I mean, there's, uh, uh, what is it, Professional JavaScript for Web Developers by Nicholas Zakas. jQuery in Action. Friend, and he's, he is actually one of the JavaScript gurus that's, that I just, I, I appreciate so much. And there's another forum that I launched. It's called jsmentors.com. And that came out of my desire to have a place where any developer of any skill level can go and ask a question and not be afraid to ask a question. Wow. Yeah, and so I, I there have been other forums where, uh, unfortunately, if you, you weren't a, a really high-level JavaScript developer and you asked a silly question, at least silly in the eyes of the people on that forum. You'll be marked right. mercilessly. Yes, and so that, and I didn't like that. I'm, I, maybe it's just the community side of me. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to do something about that. And so I got together with a, a JavaScript guru. His name is Asen Boslyhoff, and we launched... Um, jsmentors.com and it's been fantastic and we got plenty of people on there some really high level people who know javascript like the back of their hand and uh, they're kind of mentors and they respect each other and they respect people of all skill levels so that's a great place to go if you want to get together if you want to get get to know javascript and you want to ask questions without feeling intimidated or abused in any way that um that sentiment that you just uh said there and that you have so pro you know so nicely laid out on your website uh, you must not uh insult other subscribers post racist comments or spam that's just so important and it, it's been a cornerstone of of my learning in my career i was influenced by people who were just very very easy to talk to and never made you feel bad about asking a dumb question and uh, that's that's sort of been um, one of one of my pet peeves. 
yeah, throughout you, it, my car- entire career is the holier-than-thou attitude. Exactly. And you should be able to ask a question, even if, even if it's the most simple question, and get a really, a really professional answer. Yeah. I don't see why that would be such a problem. And, and unfortunately, there are some sites that just, it's the, it's, you're, you said it perfectly, the holier-than-thou attitude. Yeah. And they will, they'll either tell you, you know, read the manual, and I'm saying it nicely, obviously. Yep. Um, or tell you get a book. Or not really care, not even answer it. Just, just totally disregard you, and I and I find that I find that appalling. I do too. Well, and there's this interesting side of the progression of skill that you're going to come in at a certain level and get the right help that pushes you up to the next skill level. You know, it's it it's there there's strata through that, and I think part of the obligation as you move through the strata is reaching down and pulling others up with you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, hopefully this 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 site that J uh, and really it's more a it's actually a Google group. We we had, we switched from a, a dedicated mailing uh, mailing list to a Google group because it was just more sustainable and manageable, and uh, it's it's worked out well. It really has, and people are they they go there, they have great conversations, they exchange feedback, and so far it's been a, a very positive thing. Ray Bango, thank you very much for uh, for joining us today. It's been great to talk to you. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a